The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Discover hope and healing from the other side. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Listen, they're all around you, close as a thought or a memory. Messages of Hope. Well, good afternoon, everybody, and welcome back to another episode. I'm so excited today. First of all, This weekend, I have the honor of giving one of the key presentations at the annual conference of the International Association of Near-Death Studies. The term near-death studies was coined way back in 1975 by my guest today. Dr. Raymond Moody is a world-renowned scholar, lecturer, and researcher, widely known as the leading authority on near-death experiences. So if you can't tell why I'm excited, now you know. He's a psychologist, a physician, and an author, widely known for his books about life after death and near-death experiences. And as I mentioned, he coined that term, and it came up in his best-selling book, Life After Life. I found it really uh, coincidental that this week I was watching a podcast by my friend Irene Vuvalides. She was talking about overcoming the grief of her daughter's passing, and she held up on the video a copy of Life After Life and said, this book is always on my desk. So, Dr. Moody, it's an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you so much, and it's just an honor to be with you. People should know that, you know, to the degree to which you've served the country and inspired women. I've got a 18-year-old daughter, you know, that can look higher now because of what you did. You're just the greatest. Thank you. Well, thank you. I want to talk about you today. (laughs) We had um, Lisa Smart on as our guest last week, so it's just wonderful that we follow today because you two are working together on your your projects, and we're going to spend much of our time today talking about your new book, which is called Making Sense of Nonsense. It's not yet out. I believe it comes out when in January? January, yep. Yeah. With okay. Well, we're publishers. Okay, Llewellyn, and we are going to get people excited about that today. I am excited. I'm so grateful I got to read an advanced copy, and it really validated something that I've been teaching. Great. But but we'll get into that after right. just letting people get to know you, Dr. Moody. Mm-hmm. Why don't you just share with people uh, how you got into researching the afterlife if, if I, I asked that question without prefacing it the way I wanted to um, 
there's a preface in your new version of Life After Life that says, Mm -hmm. when future historians record the story of humankind's efforts to understand its place in the universe, they will see a crucial turning point in Life After Life written by Dr. Raymond Moody. So, wow. Your friend and mine. Yes. Yes, right. Dr. Eben Alexander wrote that. So what... What compelled you to research something that at the time in the, in the 70s was uh, not much talked about or believed in the afterlife? Well, you know, to me, it's just so, it's a, I, I look back on it, I think this is a pretty amazing series of events. But basically, I had uh, was raised in a family. My dad was a military surgeon in World War II in the Pacific Theater. Mm. So you can imagine the personality there and a military officer. And, um, I, you know, the, that generation didn't talk. But in retrospect, I've sort of put it together. I, I imagine that what happened was that he saw such horrors in the Pacific that he in my early recollections, he was sort of hostile to religion, and so fortunately for me, I I went to church three times, I think, when I was a kid during Dad's midlife crisis. He hauled yeah. to this Presbyterian church, but quickly got discouraged, thank goodness. So. Hmm. But anyway, in the meantime, I grew up fascinated, and still am fascinated, by astronomy, Uh, one thing. And then the other thing was, when I was a kid, I just lived, I mean, I read Dr. Seuss and Lewis Carroll and Edward Lear, my favorite writers, really. And so I was always interested in nonsense. And so, uh, and unintelligibility, which, by the way, as you know, is an important concept in science, too, because it's kind of a placeholder concept. But um, so I proudly went to the UVA in 1962, determined I wasn't even thinking about a bachelor's degree. I was PhD in astronomy was on my mind. Hmm. But I'd, I'd been interested in the philosophy a little bit in high school. So I took a philosophy class and I was hooked, literally. I mean, I just, um, the, from the first couple of pages of reading Plato's Republic in September of 62, I was hooked. And this, and I instantly decided to be a philosophy major, but what the, everybody knows that title, and everybody thinks, oh, it's something about justice, which is kind of true. But what it's really about is the concept of justice in relationship to the notion of life after death. And it culminates in this amazing story about a warrior who had been believed dead on the battlefield but revived during his funeral and told his colleagues about getting out of his body and going through a passageway into another world. And Plato, who's Ah. my hero, took this seriously. And so I was... To me, I, the idea of an afterlife to me was just, it, it didn't exist, uh, the idea even. And so so I asked Professor Hammond, you know, what is this? Yeah, and Professor Hammond said, yeah, these early Greek philosophers were interested in stories of people who, who uh, were believed dead and revived and had these experiences. So then three years later, I heard that right there in Charlottesville was Dr. George Ritchie 
who had had such an experience himself, and again in World War II, and took the opportunity to listen to George. And I, I mean, you know, I didn't know whether it was quote real or not, but mm-hmm. I knew George was real. I mean, the greatest guy I ever knew. And then, mm. so then I went on and got my PhD in philosophy. Began to gather a lot of these cases from my colleagues and students then went to medical school in 72 and so you know I mean it just kind of developed like that I've had the privilege since 1965 of interviewing thousands and thousands of people who had these um, near-death experiences they almost died and then, as uh, Dr. Eben Alexander wrote in the intro to your book, the new the new version of Life After Life, he says that you've always maintained a cautious yet open-minded skepticism about what these experiences imply. Yes, and thanks for that word skeptic, because I am a skeptic, and a skeptic enough to know that the people who... Uh, you know, characterize themselves as skeptics in the field that you and I and are not at all skeptics. They don't even know what it means. It's mm. basically Pyrrho was the first skeptic, and that procedure is to assiduously refrain from drawing conclusions. But if somebody tells you, oh, I'm a skeptic about near-death experiences, I think it's the chemistry of the brain, well, that person doesn't know what a skeptic is, but the skeptical position is you just don't draw a conclusion. And so that's where I am. I And uh, also David Hume, who is, you know, one of the founders of the scientific mind with his analysis of causation and induction and so on, but he once pointed out correctly, and I remember reading this as an undergraduate and saying right on, uh, Hume said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind. Hello? Dr. Moody, we dro- your line dropped. So, oh, my goodness. Didn't move or anything. So no, sure all of a sudden it just went click, and you weren't there, and I've spent two minutes trying to get you back, so doggone oh, no, it. I'm so, so sorry. 15 minutes to go, I believe. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I don't know what happened. It's not anybody's fault. So, Louis, what? 16 more minutes. Okay. I'm going to get a timer going for 16. Dr. Moody, the last thing I heard, what you had been speaking a bit about the Hume quote. Yes. Yeah. And could the, you would you mind going back? Are we recording yes. you, Louis? Sure, sure. Louis, are we recording? Yeah. Okay, let's Great. go. If you would. Great. Uh, David Hume was one of my favorite philosophers, and he was one of the founders of scientific mind, and sort of by it, it, talking about the notion of causation and induction, and he made the famous statement that. The real problem with the afterlife is that it doesn't fit into our logic because, you know, by technically, logically, the sentence, there's life after death is just a self-contradiction. And it's no by, by no means easy to, to um, fix that problem. So um, through a long process, I have sort of reached a 
an entirely new way of investigating the afterlife by reformatting people's minds uh, in advance so that they can think logically about lots of different things that, uh, and lots of different fields of study, psychology and uh, uh, religion and philosophy and even commerce. I mean, uh, there's, there's uh, business implications for this and commercial implications as well. But uh, what, What's exciting the- for me, sir, is when, when we read about how you can help people induce communications with loved ones who have passed, which I really want to get into in the second half of this show, yeah. using this, this technique that you've come up with. So I want to entice everybody to stay with us for that. But I have, before you go too much further, last week when I interviewed uh, your colleague, Lisa Smart, she told me you've recently become fully convinced of the afterlife, even though you said you're a skeptic. Yes, Is that true? I have, and I have, and by the as convinced as a philosopher can be, let's put it that way. And, and this is the thing where I, I, I know I, even from medical school, I understood that it doesn't have anything to do with oxygen deprivation to the brain. I mean, that is the old argument. But um, I had a wonderful medical school professor who told me my first year in medical school about an experience she had when she was resuscitating her own mother. And as her mother died, she herself, the doctor, got out of her body and looked down, saw her own body and her Mm. mother's dead body, and saw her mother in spirit form, saw this tunnel, saw people emerging from it who who were her mother's deceased relatives and friends. And so, you know, I mean, my friend, my doc, my professor, she was not ill or injured. There was not oxygen deprivation to her brain. And I've, you know, interviewed hundreds of these people who have have a, what we call a near-death experience, the same features, not when they are almost dying, but when somebody else, they're in the presence of somebody else who. The shared so, death experience. The shared death experience is right. Uh-huh. And, but still, I mean, I just didn't know how to put this all together. But one, a, a number of cases among people I know so well, like medical colleagues, for example, finally brought me around to the point where I just give up. I don't know what else to say. Uh, I would say it's it's like a talk that I gave that I called the preponderance of the evidence. It's just finally yeah. so overwhelming. You can't, you know, it's like the, the human side wants to just cling to the old belief system be- before you say what you just said, I give up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really have a belief system to cling to except just curiosity. But what I... What finally brought me around, I guess, well, there were a number of things right in the same period of time, but one was um, the story of Jeff Olson. I don't know if you know Jeff. I've had him on the show, yes. Yeah, and his uh, his uh, doctor in the emergency room, Dr. Uh, Jeff O'Donnell. The, and he's been on the show. <laughs> yeah, eminent yeah. Um, emergency room doctor, and uh, Jeff uh, Olson was in a horrible car crash in which his wife was killed instantly, and 
Jeff almost died. His leg was crushed off. And, uh, but um, while um, Jeff Olson was having his near-death experience, um, Jeff O'Donnell, the mer- emergency room doctor who was there, was um, talking with the dead wife of Jeff Olson. And, and, you know, at a certain point, you just give up. I mean, I... You know, and I know so many doctors who tell me that sort of thing, and I would trust their medical judgment, for example, and that's one test for me. When I, and uh, I guess you probably know um, Anthony Chicoria as well, the professor of uh, orthopedic surgery at NYU, who had just an absolutely profound near-death experience, which. Um, imbued some sort of profound musical talent to him. That's right. That's now, right. in addition to being a, a neuro a orthopedic surgery professor, he's a concert pianist. I mean, there's just too <laughs> much odd right. material to put together now without invoking the idea that there's an afterlife, I think. And then, of course, if you did say that we could talk about this today, I recently learned by reading your book, Paranormal, My Life in Pursuit of the Afterlife, that you have had your own near-death experience. And I'd like to say that the same thing that caused yours, your the illness that you deal with, came up in a reading in one of the most profound readings I ever did with a woman who took her own life trying to explain to her husband that she was not in her right mind when she did it and she had a yeah. thyroid disease so yeah. would you share with us how you yeah I yeah. had mixed edema which is a profound hypothyroidism and it sneaks up it doesn't change much from day to day so people don't notice it and then you finally just get so Profound, and one of the actually one of the presenting symptoms of mixed edema often is a, is a uh, often the way it's detected is a suicide attempt. So that's what happened to me. And the funniest thing, I had had a friend; the same thing happened to him. I mean, I wasn't a political friend of his, but I was a personal friend. His name was John East, and he was senator at one time from at from North Carolina, and um, John and I, we were, you know, he was he was into right-wing politics. I, I wasn't interested in that, but I was just, he was a neat guy, and he was a smart guy, so we were friends, and, uh, but when John got up to Washington, he, I think he um, used carbon monoxide in the garage, as I remember, and it turned out that the underlying cause was thyroid disease and that's what happened with this woman i brought through from the other side from this afterlife but so the same disease that caused your uh, you know depression was it depression or just uh, i can't say that it was depression it's um you know i've been depressed for sure i know what depression feels like but this this is something else i mean you know they look depressed and i it's just like you feel like you're walking through granular jello. It's just a very unusual experience. And the world looks drastically pale and no hope and so on. And mm. So I did. I did. And I, you know, I don't think that I exactly had a classical near-death experience. What I say is I got to close enough to the, 
that I could see the city limit sign. You know what <laughs> I mean? And that. But you did I, sense spirits around you, as you said in your book, who were there to guide you, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was. Um, it was really fascinating. It was just like these people, if I could call them that. I mean, yeah, they're sentient beings, and. Um, and again, no words for this, but the closest thing to me is I i certainly understand what people talk about, the hyper-reality. You know... Um, but Dr. Mooney, before you move on from that, though, yeah. the, most, the reason I wanted to bring this up is because what you wrote in your book was so meaningful to so many people who are grieving and want to end their life. You said yeah. that the one positive thing that came out of your attempt is that people who say they'll never again try to kill themselves because they had this experience, not because they fear going to hell, but yep. because through that experience, they learned that life does have a purpose. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. I mean, and it's in a way you can't get out of life by suicide. I, I gathered from my brief foray there that it's like a sidetrack or something, that whatever you are dealing with you just you can't get out of it by suicide it just doesn't work and and that there's always a learning that goes along with this and um, those things i have come to see i am um, confident you know you say well you think there's a life after death then what is this life really and uh, and I and what that, was that purpose that you found though i know i my guides have made it very clear and i do in all my teaching that life has a purpose i'd love to hear it in you your words from having had that experience you know something i think that if you're looking for some grand overall statement we all say love yeah that's what everybody says with a near-death experience that yes the purpose of this life is to cultivate love I see that. And then at this next level up of articulation, it goes far beyond that. I've heard people say that you have to say love because that's just the closest thing on earth to it. But that mm -hmm. it is so far, profoundly far above that that they experience and that it is love sort of, I gather, pervaded with information mm -hmm. that there is no such thing as we have now here. Uh, well, basically, George Ritchie said that it's like when a question pops into your mind, it, the answer just sort of appears instantly. And I've heard a lot of people say things like that, that knowledge is more accessible and um, that it's more real than real. Yeah, and that, mm -hmm. that I do think that one thing I learned too, and this is from talking with lots of people who had their near-death experiences in connection with suicide attempts, that, you know, it's the people who tell you that you're going to hell, well, they're trying to scare you, that... It's not It's mm. not that you're going to go to hell. It's that you, I guess that you have to do a replay or something. Or Yeah, I mean, it's complicated, but it's, 
And and another thing I have learned, Suzanne, as a psychiatrist, that and I bet you think if you think about it, most of the people you know are probably committing suicide, right? I mean, that and like, the ones the ones that I bring through in my readings, it's e- many of those, and unfortunately, drug overdoses also yeah. are, at, and then natural causes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then also, you know, like using the cell phone going down the highway or smoking yourself or drinking yourself to death or or whatever we do, it's like the idea that God would be, you know, throw somebody in hell who took pills 30 minutes with pills and give somebody who took 30 cig- years with cigarettes a pass is rather absurd on the scale of things, you know, so... Mm-hmm. What I'm getting at is that I think religion has instilled a much more severe and grave view of life in people than I gather, certainly from people who have near-death experiences, that God is not, you know, after you with a list, and you're not going to have a theology exam when you die and such. But and this is way more than this is not wishful thinking that we we are surrounded by love when we pass this you've as you said okay. interviewed thousands of people who've had these experiences yeah yeah it's wow. just fascinating but you know like i just i give up i mean i just don't know what else to say except that <laughs> apparently there's an afterlife <laughs> And what I what I love about your work is how you really you instigated transformation in in our whole culture with people no longer fearing death so much and and I love you know people planning communications after death with loved ones who will still be here. Our, my friend Brenda Baker had a bunch of friends say, "Okay, once you get to the other side, let us know by certain code yeah. words." And and you've been credited with starting that whole transformation, which is awesome. I know I have, and it's a little bit embarrassing because number <laughs> one, I don't. That self-esteem thing is bonk. My philosophy <laughs> is I try to keep my self-esteem as low as possible. And I know my limitations. And thank you for those words. And I will just sort of pass it along to Plato, essentially. I, I love that you say Ritchie. that. <laughs> I love Plato that you say that, Dr. Moody. You know, and it, it goes way back. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I know you can handle me saying this. As I was getting ready to do this show, my guides were talking to me and saying, no person is any more special than any other. That and I mean, is so right. You know, I'm, here I am saying I'm so honored to have you on the show, yet at the same time, I'm honored to have anybody on my show. And we I'm talk so about honored love. to be on your show and honored that all these <laughs> people are listening to well, it's awesome. So you have this new book, Making Sense of Nonsense, and you have this whole fascinating spin on that. And so as we're going into a break now, I want to have everybody come back after this short three-minute break because Dr. Moody is going to talk to us about how we can use nonsensical language to induce communications with our loved ones. If that doesn't entice you, I don't know what does. Come on back. You're listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Welcome back, everybody. Hope everybody had a good break. And we're still talking with Dr. Raymond Moody, the author of Life After Life and several other best-selling books, the, the eminent authority on life after death, which he says is a nonsensical statement. When you think about it, it is. Dr. Moody, why don't you tell us about this book that fell on your head and led you to new explorations in the afterlife? Yes. Well, I was, uh, I spent my childhood essentially surrounded by a telescope and piles of horn. Here's the who and uh, Alice in Wonderland. And I just think nonsense. You know, Suzanne, Dr. Seuss's books have sold over 600 million copies all around the world. And so when I, as I said in my book, Life After Life, near the very beginning, I um, studied philosophy of language, and that was the that was the um, uh, the background that I brought to the study of near death experiences because these things are language, right? All we have really is the stories, mm-hmm. and and so that was part of. And as I said there in the book, I was um, uh, interested in logic and philosophy of language, and. I have been working literally since I was, I guess, a kid, or certainly since I was in graduate school, on a system of rules and principles for how you think about things that don't make any sense. And um, and if this sounds shocking, I will say that most people love the war, the nonsense. Like you're too young for doo-wop music, like Shana na 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 na. Not quite uh, that young. <laughs> got to got to get a job, and um, so um, and Louis Armstrong and scat singing and Doctor mm-hmm. Seuss and nursery rhymes. So uh, this was what I studied in graduate school, and um, so so, and then I, after that I went to medical school and became a psychiatrist. And in 1985. I think it was no six eighty six. I think it was October. I was a professor of uh, psychology, and you know I had a lot of students who were eighteen, and um, even if they're sympathetic to psychology, an eighteen or nineteen year old is going to, you know. Uh, that they, they will accept that there's an unconscious, but it will be a kind of spooky notion to them. So, mm-hmm. so I um, to give students. I was uh, interested in giving students access to their unconscious mind. So I was walking through this bookstore, and a book literally fell off the shelf, entitled Crystal Gazing. It was published in. 1905, and it was about how I had always assumed it was just a cartoon thing, the gypsy woman with the crystal ball, but actually Mm -hmm. it's a psychological reality that if you create an optical depth, like with a mirror surrounded by a black cloth, for example, or a crystal ball, or um, even a bowl of water, silver bowl filled with water and polished on, then filled with water, Mm -hmm. um, and it died 
in darkened space, you can actually see visions, and they are full color. They move around. They have a life of their own, and it's not like you feel you're making them up. They just appear, and so uh, I was reading that, and I said, hmm, well, I'm going to try this with my students. So I set it up and just to give them access to their unconscious. So I was doing this for several years. And now, back to Greek philosophy, as you can tell by now, my favorite subject. <laughs> and Suzanne, as wildly and probable as this may seem, according to its inventor, uh, or the foundational concept of logic probably, is truth, the notion of truth. And the person who came up with that was a Greek philosopher, Parmenides, about 500 BCE. And to make a long story short, Parmenides was involved with these institutions they called oracles of the dead that were very important in the origin of what Greek philosophy. It's one of the most amazing stories of history, how... These early Greek philosophers were aware of these techniques they used at oracles of the dead for calling up the spirits of the deceased. And you can read in ancient history all about this. It's in Herodotus mm -hmm. and Plutarch and, I mean, a lot of stuff I've read over the years. There's whole books on it. And so, basically, I studied the oracles of the dead when I was an undergraduate in college and then in 1988. I read in a Greek uh, classical archaeology journal that the most famous of the oracles of the dead had been rediscovered and excavated. And again, to make a long story short, based on what they found there, I could tell what they were doing. They had a setup to make an optical clear depth. They had a cauldron, which they presumably highly polished on the inside and then filled with fluid and mm -hmm. by torchlight in an underground chamber. And I knew it would work, basically. So I r read all the Greek sources. And one of the things they did to prepare you was that they would, uh, you would have to utter, or the, the evoker of the dead would utter these long magical formulas. They were nonsense words, but they were just designed to um, get your mind into the receptive framework to gaze into the mirror. This is these these connections go go far far back in history. And so, then to make a long story short, and this may, may sound reckless without enough context, but in 1990 I just decided, hey, I'm going to do this. So mm -hmm. I set up a chamber. It's just like a mirror and a room with a dark uh, black cloth all around the walls to keep uh, reflections and exclude light and a comfortable easy chair you sit in front of a mirror you have the mirror positioned on the wall in such a height that you can't see it from you, you can't see your reflection right you're mm -hmm. just gazing into an empty depth and you put a little light bulb behind you and a rheostat switch a dimmer so you can adjust it to your comfort level in there. And that's mm -hmm. all the apparatus you need, but what the more important part is the process. Like I, I take, I'm, you can do this by, your, by yourself, but I recommend you don't. Get a friend to, it, it's because it's, when it happens, it is so, 
you can't imagine how real it is. I mean, it just blows your mind. Well, you talked about doing it the first time, and nothing happened in the actual room. But when you stepped out, your was it your grandmother in full form stepped into the other room where you were? That's right. I mean, and you had a conversation. It a lot. Of, yeah, people say the apparitions come out of the mirror, and uh, or they appear back again when they get home, and so on. And I have got, I've uh, one thing you use is like the Greeks said it, it opens up your mind if you can get your favorite sort of nonsense uh, like there are playground rhymes that a lot of people listening to this will remember that were nonsense like one bright day in the middle of the night two dead boys get up got up to fight back to back they faced each other drew their swords and shot each other and so on and so on and so on or use your favorite Dr. Seuss. The idea is to get your mind, and it, it, nonsense demonstrably alters consciousness. It really does. This is a very exciting kind of, uh, uh, lots of implications from this. This, but, this is really exciting to me because your, your book, which comes out in January, but I got to read in advance, it really goes into how this works to get into that altered state of consciousness, but in a safe way and with yeah. the goal of connecting with loved ones. This is fabulous. Yeah. Yes, and, and Suzanne, I've been doing it. I've done, I started doing them in 1990, I think it was, and I've got it hundreds and hundreds of people through it. I mean, it's, uh, and this was known very well in Britain and America until about 1915. And as I know, because at that point I've studied the iconography, this was all over magazines and and mm. uh, postcards. I mean, it's the theme. And uh, everywhere, everybody knew. You think of um, Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. That was just common knowledge that these... But what I gather happened is what? that yeah. after radio, wouldn't you think, like, instead of, interacting with each other like they did in the Victorian era. People were sitting around listening to the radio and then the TV. So it dropped out about that time. But this right. is something that was very well known to our great-grandparents. Amazing. Now, it's really funny that um, you mentioned Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland, of course, by Lewis Carroll, is so full of what you term nonsense. And I wanted to tell you, Dr. Mooney, you, you may be surprised to hear this, but I was Alice in Wonderland in the seventh grade play in junior high school. I wow, was the star. And, but why I bring it up is because it's hard enough to memorize an entire performance, but memorizing nonsense was incredibly difficult because there was no reference. It made no sense. That's and you had right. to memorize words that didn't fit together. <laughs> yes, it is. It is. It's you know it does all kinds of amazing things to the mind, and um, I uh, some of them. I I think your friends at Langley. I you know I, I've read some <laughs> CIA. I, I don't have friends yeah, at the CIA. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm sorry. I, you don't. <laughs> I I don't. You you call oh. the you call the CIA and they don't say hello. I have called them and they don't say hello. This is the CIA. They just say hello. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I gotta say, the greatest people in the world. They consulted me on this three times, and really? I really, you know, I 
<clears throat> and I have never met a nicer group of people. It was just like <laughs> I had no idea what they did. I was thinking it was like jumping out of airplanes and you know James Bond stuff. But this is the nerd brigade, right? Just people <laughs> like me, except they're nicer. <laughs> and uh, I just what a great, great group. And it's like the hair a little out of place, the glasses crooked. <laughs> They're great, <laughs> great well, folks. <laughs> but getting getting back, to, oh, if I if I could, you suspect what? Please finish your thought. You know that this is this is certainly something that is of interest to interrogators, for example, nonsense questions and so on. Huh. Well, if we could steer this back to uh, connecting yeah. with loved ones, I don't know where I came up with this idea, but I have been teaching people to practice writing to their loved ones in an altered state, loved ones who have passed, and then listen for their response. And so many people are afraid to start writing because they feel they're making it up. And what I've been guiding them over the years without realizing the the real science behind it, if you could, the logic behind it, is to just write nonsense to get your mind out of that left brain state to write nonsensical statements and yes. wait for your loved one to step in. So this fascinates me. Yeah, see, I've been using these exercises that are in the book for since 1969. I started using them in my logic classes when I was a professor of philosophy at East Carolina University. And the students really respond to this. It opens up aspects of their minds that they didn't even know they had so it definitely opens up uh, new cognitive channels and I remember one of the first things I noticed it might have been the first quarter I taught there if it wasn't it surely was no later than the second quarter uh, and this young woman I remember she would come in with her baby and and um, so she about midway through the quarter she came back and she said, Dr. Moody, Dr. Moody, she said, I was really having trouble with chemistry, she said. And she had a couple of weeks of it, and she said, oh, I'm going to have to drop this and all. She said, and then I started doing the nonsense exercises, and she said that seemed to jog something in her mind, and she then found the chemistry very easy. So what I, wow. I've heard repeatedly that same comment from students that it it seemed to to enhance their ability that that it made previously difficult subjects seem easier and uh, so I think that that would be a you know an effect one of the effects of these uh, these kinds of exercises and as we both know you know nonsense has always been used to induce spiritual states. Uh, two of the common examples, I guess, would be glossolalia in the Christian tradition that uses nonsense syllables put together without a grammatical order to induce ecstatic states. Mm -hmm. And I've tried that myself. It's really just mind-bending. You can, you know, as I like to say, I jabbered myself into some pretty amazing states of consciousness. I'll and have to then try that. Another, then another one would be koans, right, which are what is the sound of one hand clapping. By right. putting the mind to work on a, on a nonsense question, you can actually sort of split people over into transcendent states of consciousness. 
That is fascinating. And again, that's going to be in Dr. Moody's new book that's coming out in January. I think people should mark their calendars, actually, since it's not out yet. So go ahead, move ahead on your calendars of January and write down, look up Making Sense of Nonsense with Dr. Raymond Moody so that we can get that when it comes out. But uh, you, you mentioned these nonsense exercises that you offered in class that help people with, with tougher subjects like chemistry. Yeah. What, what would be an example well, of an exercise? Well, you know, talk about common sense, Suzanne. The idea that there could be types of nonsense seems weird, right? Yes. we think of it as something undifferentiated and beyond reason. But actually, I, I've identified over 70 different types of nonsense. And don't worry, I'm not going to get into all of them, but just <laughs> listen to these three sentences. Great, great. Twas Brillig and the Slithy Topes did Gyre and Gimble in the Wave. Right? That's one type. But now listen to this type. Holiness breeds the vestigial lipstick of spontaneity. That's another type. Mm-hmm. Or here's yet a third type. That cannibal you men just ate was the last one in this city. All three of those are nonsense, but you can tell there's different patterns. Mm-hmm. And then one of, and so as they work through these exercises, the students recognize the different types, and then they they write their own examples of it. They write their original examples of it. And then they go back and they say, well, how did that make me feel? You know, what was my mental process? And I mean, it's just, it's, I've taught this now for, gosh, decades. And I just have so many wonderful um, memories of my students who really were encouraged me over the years to, eventually it became an entire semester length course uh, which I taught, you know, numerous times at universities, and uh, the students were just wildly enthusiastic. So I'm so grateful to, you know, to have had a really good audience of students to help me explore this. the The interesting thing is that you have multiple advanced degrees. You're working with others who are well-educated, and you're talking about a subject, nonsense, that just the word has a connotation that invokes disdain. That's nonsense. It does, and that is, Suzanne, this is going to sound startling, but hey, you know, I'm, I don't make things, statements I can't back up. There is a really bad cognitive defect that people have because of an inconsistency in that they love nonsense, doo-wop music, nursery rhymes, Dr. Seuss, Lewis Carroll, Samuel Beckett, some people, uh, Shel Silverstein, one of my favorites, but they don't like the word nonsense. And because of that, that really effectively prevents them from reasoning logically, not just about life after death, but about many other important subjects. You know, in um, science, nonsense serves as a placeholder. You know that wonderful uh, Japanese-American physics professor in New York oh. who's on TV? Oh. I can't... Me- yes, yes, yes. Oh, Mitch. Okay. I remember, and we all know him, and what a (laughs) great guy. And Mm -hmm. I saw one of his documentaries, and he was talking about, he said, like, the basic problem of 
reality right now is that the two best physical systems ever devised, general relativity and the quantum theory, he said, and they're all just great, but when you combine the equations, he said, you get complete nonsense. And that, that's his word. And so you see what nonsense is a placeholder, kind of like we hold on to it, knowing there's something there, but eventually we're going to get to the answer. And um, it's happened lots of times before in science, and I suspect it will happen again with the question of life after death. And, you know, a lot of people have very poignant memories, too, Suzanne, about nonsense. And my own favorite is my, mine. I have a wonderful son, Suzanne, and his name is, is Carter, and Carter is now yes. 21. And he is Mexican-American by heritage. I think you know this story. Well, I know and, this story because our mutual friend Sylvia Reeves Sylvia, helped with that. Yeah, She helped. She was the person who arranged it. And so when we were down in the Kerrville and getting in this wonderful family, the birth family, we, and on the day that we took Carter home from the hospital, my wife and I, we all went to lunch, and that there was uh, Carter's uh, biological maternal grandparents and his biological mother and my wife, Cheryl, and Carter in his little carry-on seat and me. And we were there, at the, and we were talking about the gist of the conversation was that Carter will always know his birth family and that that um, in the passage of time we'll all get together. And so I looked up on the wall of the restaurant and there was this placard there. It was there for humor. Mm-hmm. And it said, closed. I have gone out to find myself. If I should arrive before I return, please hold me till I come back. Oh, my gosh. I know. And they did. In April of 2011, they all, the whole family came and stayed a week with us. And, and it's, you know, nonsense can, it sometimes can carry messages between the worlds. <laughs> You you write in your book that nonsense turns out to be the missing piece that always before blocked serious investigation of the afterlife. Yes. Could you explain that? Yeah, it's like when you get any science magazine, look at, you know, just read through them every week and you'll see a constant barrage of, oh, Professor, you know, Willis's idea is nonsense or his idea is unintelligible. This is kind of a standard way of talking in in academic and scientific discourse is to call other people's views nonsense, right? So yeah. um, and so what that boils down to is that when we reach the conclusion that something is unintelligible, that or nonsensical, that means that there's no further investigation is uh, is uh-huh. possible. But what I say is, no, that's not the case, that when we, when we uh, find out that an idea is unintelligible, we, just, we shift to a different set of rules, like how you think about things that are meaningless and unintelligible. Go back in your mind right now, Suzanne, to 1919, okay. and... 
be an educated person of that era and listen to the following three sentences. All four of Ethel's grandparents died and were lost in a shipwreck long before her mother and father were born. All right. Now, in 1919, that's unintelligible, right? It doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. add the knowledge of DNA and its role in inheritance, the possibility of cloning and gene editing. You see what I'm getting at? Now I do. It, it makes sense. Or go back to 1919 oh. and listen to this one. Two women got married to each other at City Hall yesterday, right? Nonsensical. Now the mm-hmm. law of the land. Or 1919, and listen, I watched a movie on my phone this morning. See, <laughs> so just because an idea is an unintelligible now doesn't mean that we can't open it up in the future. And I think that's exactly where we are now with this whole question of rational inquiry into life after death. I think there's a entirely new opening possible where we can actually make progress with it. Wow. And it's you who opened the door to that in a big way decades ago and still at it and opening our minds to possibilities. It's fascinating. Well, you know, afflicted with curiosity. I'm sure you are too. uh, (laughs) Endless, endless. Yeah, endless, endless. It's just so amazing. I realized the first time I looked through a telescope, I'll never know much of anything in the cosmic scale. But nonetheless, it's just so fascinating to try to figure out as much as you can. Well, it's been fascinating talking with you. This program has gone far too quickly. Dr. Raymond Moody, his new book, Making Sense of Nonsense, due out in January. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom Thank and insights you so with us. Much. And again, listen, you just, you're like all accomplished people. You just, but you don't think of your own accomplishments. But thank you so much. You are welcome. Everybody have a great week. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Liz Winter, and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Medium Ship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.